Hello, this is Michael Farragher. Thank you for joining us again between the borders. Uh, today we're going to do something a little different, uh, a little longer. We've been told that we're going to want to try between 30 and 60 minute episodes, not permanently, but at least as an experiment. Uh, so here we are today. Uh, also, I guess I don't need to dance around it. You've obviously read the title, but today we're going to be doing something a little more intensive, and that is just a very quick history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now I want it to be known that we have no intention on taking sides here. Uh, we do have our own framing biases, we all do, but I'm going to attempt to provide the best uh, high-level information that I can so you can understand that this isn't this isn't a minor issue, this isn't a flash in the pan, and there is a lot of history, there are generations of history here, and we need to be able to look at all of that and the way things have changed over the years in order to truly appreciate the situation. I'd also like to take this opportunity to apologize for those of you who speak Arabic and or Hebrew. I do not. My pronunciation is going to be terrible. I apologize, and it's really all I can do. Uh, moving on. The general geography of Israel as it stands uh, has the Golan Heights at the northern end, the West Bank to the east, and the Gaza Strip to the southwest. These are all, at some point or another, occupied or otherwise captured territories. I'll get to those when we actually get to that, uh, get to the wars involved. But to the southwest, you have the Sinai Peninsula as well, which becomes a major issue. They are otherwise surrounded by Syria, Jordan, Egypt. And while this information would be widely available to anyone who is serving in the Israeli Defense Force, I would like to provide some context here in that a large number of the Israelis who have been dealing with the Palestinians for the past 60 years uh, are basically, they're the frontline soldiers, they're not the career officers. They're high schoolers who have just been conscripted, put through a couple months worth of training, and then shoved into a very hostile area. And that's not defending uh, any sort of action, but you have a bunch of scared kids who don't speak the language, who don't understand the culture, being shoved into a bad situation. And that that starts a very bad precedent. Um, you'll see that that is one of the things that has always been a problem, is there's a lack of understanding between the two sides. And just imagine now with the limited information you can gather from this podcast, uh, random Wikipedia articles, that now you'll be thrown into a situation where a small percentage of the population, but percentage nonetheless, will want you dead simply for being there. It's not, it's not helpful. And as we'll see later, the rebuttals only make the issue worse. And there's where this major divide that they really didn't own up to for many, many decades. The major divide came from. Also, a bunch of the information I have comes from interviews from the former heads of Shin Bet. They are the Israeli Internal Intelligence Service. They function to prevent terror, to prevent espionage, and a few other things which we're not particularly interested in at this time. Suffice it to say, they are um, 
they are an intelligence service, which hopefully a lot of you will understand, but they provide information, but they also, for a time, acted as a secret police that was, for the most part, above the law. What they did do, though, as an intelligence service, is when one of their operatives went into an area or was tasked with an area, they learned everything they could. They learned the people, they learned the territory, they learned the businesses. And that is one of the reasons why, once they started realizing what they were doing wrong, things became better for a time, and hopefully continue to become better as more and more people are actually addressing the concerns brought up by many people on both sides. Prior to 1900, there were uh, Jewish residents fleeing from general persecution in European theater, but there weren't terribly many of them. As the uh, second, sorry, the First World War ended and there was sort of the slow roll rise of power in Germany and the general anti-Semitic sentiment in Europe, uh, roughly 1920 saw 11% of the population in what is now Israel being Jewish. And in 1945, for obvious reasons, that had swollen to over 30% of the population. In 1947, the British, who had controlled the region, decided they were going to withdraw from, the, uh, withdraw from the Palestinian region. And as part of that plan, they were going to separate the territory where there would have been a Palestinian state, or in this case, I guess, an Arab state, a Jewish state, and then an extraterritorial Jerusalem, which would be held. I'm not privy to the exact details, but it sounds like it would have been uh, more akin to Vatican City than anything else. You know, a holy city held uh, by an extraterritorial force that wouldn't be involved in, uh, you know, uh, national conflicts. The Jews initially accepted this. Uh, the Arabs would not accept anything that split the territory in any way. Uh, 1947 and 1948, uh, this saw a civil war between the Jewish and the Arab factions. Uh, that saw something like three-quarters of a million uh, Arab Palestinians to flee the region due to the fighting. And in 48 to 49, when Israel declares itself a sovereign nation-state, uh, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Yemen, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, and Sudan, to some extent or another, decide to attack Israel to prevent this situation from occurring. Uh, at this point, Egypt conquers the West Bank. I'm sorry, Egypt conquers Gaza. Jordan conquers the West Bank. And eventually a ceasefire is declared. And in 1949, the United Nations recognizes Israel as a state. Now, there is... The inevitable happened. You can't occupy a territory with a million people without some sort of blowback occurring. And that blowback was, of course, violence. And that violence begat violence from the other side. And in and around that time, what we see here today uh, first began. Now, it, it didn't just erupt full-blown into what we see today, or certainly not what we saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But we have a uh, tremendous 
potential for violence that is just waiting for a chance to come out. Prior to 1967, Israel had conquered the Sinai and returned it to a cross between Egypt and UN protection in exchange for keeping open Israel's access to the Red Sea. Access to waterways is incredibly important, and in 67, when Egypt had decided to amass forces along Israel's border and then close off their access to the Red Sea, that caused, caused Israel to consider the acts as a causes belly, an act of war, a cause of war. And so they attacked Egypt. This started the Six Days War, where um, largely the entire Arab world within reach of Israel uh, engaged in war with Israel. By the end of this conflict, the Israelis had retaken the West Bank, they'd retaken Gaza, and they had taken the Golan Heights. Now, the uh, West Bank and Gaza were both territories that were originally part of the Israeli state as planned by the British, but they had been, they had been outside of Israel for over a decade, and generally the populations there didn't necessarily want uh, to be Israeli. They didn't want the Jews there. And that, once again, started a tremendous backlash, a part of which ended up with the PLO in 1972 killing the Israeli athletes for the Munich Olympics. Uh, this resulted in a tremendous manhunt and just a very international uh, tragedy occurred, something that's supposed to be a gathering of the nations for peace. The entire intent of the Olympics is a peaceful gathering of the nations, and they were subject to a terrorist attack that killed a number of athletes uh, simply because of... I'm oversimplifying. It's not simply because of their religious beliefs. But it's a combination of their religious beliefs and the actions of the Israeli state. And there is no, there's no defending that sort of terrorism. But I don't believe that anybody's going to, so let's just plainly move on. In 1974, we begin to see a, a major problem as... Uh, Jewish settlers begin moving into the territories for which it, they are not allowed to settle. And these illegal settlements are given the blind eye by the Israeli government. In effect, in order to keep the Palestinian uh, sections Palestinian, they didn't want Israeli, uh, Israeli citizens, Jewish citizens, to go in and begin setting up settlements. That was part of at least the tacit agreement between them, and the settlers simply ignored that. Tensions would continue to rise, and I am glossing over a tremendous amount of small-scale terrorism and actions back and forth between the two groups. Uh, it's enough to know that these existed. We don't necessarily need any more than a few major examples.
But in 1980, uh, we see one of the more extreme examples of this. Uh, the PLO attacked a synagogue, bombed a synagogue, and the Jewish community responded by attacking a number of their, uh, their territorial mayors and I believe took the legs off of one, uh, injured another. I can't remember if there was a third killed. And they had planned on destroying a number of buses, a uh, number of Palestinian buses. When Shin Bet realized that this was going on and that the people involved were uh, Jewish, they realized that they had the shortcoming that they hadn't actually spent enough time collecting records and data on their Jewish dissidents, the people who really should be watched, uh, despite the fact that <clears throat> Shin Bet was mostly concerned about terrorism coming from the direction of the Palestinians. As Shin Bet knew that they were going to be largely unable to make anything stick unless they caught these people in the act, uh, they simply waited for them to act, and as they were planting the bombs on these buses, their agents basically said, all right, that's it. You know who we are. Uh, if you don't want our bomb techs to be put at risk, you're going to disarm those things and you're coming with us. And they disarmed the bombs and they came with them. They were tried, they were investigated, and they were released several years later and went back to their normal lives, uh, sometimes to... Uh, sometimes to applause. A lot of these people, from my perspective, sounded a lot like the terrorists on the other side. And they were talking about, well, anyone who was injured, the man whose legs they took, blah, 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 they must have deserved it. Okay, yeah, no, th this... Innocent people, and by innocent I'd largely mean anyone who is not a direct threat to you, uh, they, they're not... They didn't deserve to be killed by you for your beliefs. And these people were even further insane. Uh, they decided that it would have been a smart idea. This was their final idea to blow up the Dome of the Rock. Now, blowing up the Dome of the Rock is... I can't begin to tell you what that would mean to the entire Islamic faith. And they knew it. Uh, they decided that they were going to start the apocalypse. They were going to have the second coming of the Messiah, and everyone was going to have their final battle. It was be Judgment Day. And I am utterly just amused. Yeah, I, bear with me. I'm utterly amused that this is exactly what the Daesh is doing right now. The entire point of the Islamic State is to bring about the apocalypse. I mean, this is the end times in their eyes. So, this sort of thing never ends. You've got these groups who are convinced that the world is ending or they need to end the world. And thus, everything is on the table. You know, nothing's forbidden. They will kill or rape or maim or whatever at their leisure. Because A, they're right. Oh, I, I hate it when people do that. And B, it doesn't matter, because it's the end. You know, I mean, in a great holy war at the end, who's going to stop you from killing the enemy? Isn't that the point? That kind of mindset just 
it's foreign to me. I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. And I well and truly hope that it is something that is only believed by the people who are already dangerous terrorists who will already be living a short, brutal, and pointless life. To zoom back out, uh, in 1982, the Sinai Peninsula was returned to Egypt as part of a peace treaty with Israel. And in about that time, there was the 1982 Lebanon War. The big turning point uh, internally was that for the first time, Shimbet became the primary intelligence service over Mossad. Now, both of these services at least were. Uh, I'm not certain about are. They are very secretive. But they were definitely above the law. They were uh, a government unto themselves, and they are very peculiar. They're also some of the best intelligence services in the world, but at some point, even the heads of Shin Bet were the only ones who were publicly known to be members, questioned whether or not any of this was not only right, but if it was even effective. One of the nails in the coffin of being above the law was uh, the 300 bus incident. A group of Palestinian terrorists uh, stole a bus, and I believe they were attempting to flee the country with the passengers. But this section, what actually happened prior to uh, the Israelis stopping them, is largely immaterial. What happened was they were they were stopped. Two of the terrorists were killed and two were captured. So far, I'm on board. The Israeli army either beat the two survivors close to death or almost entirely to death. And the story is, direct from Shin Bet's mouth, that Shin Bet killed them, actually killed the prisoners. Now, whether that was a mercy and they wouldn't have survived or whether they would have survived and they just literally smashed their head in with a rock because they didn't want to deal with the trial, I don't know. Uh, that is an issue. And I don't want to say it doesn't matter anymore. It does matter. But it was the catalyst that brought Shin Bet under more, uh, more scrutiny. And... It brought the then head of Shimbet, um, again, I don't speak Hebrew, Abraham uh, Shalom. It brought him to a point where he no longer trusted his own politicians. He decided that it appeared that they would leave the wounded in the field to die, the wounded in this case being Shimbet, and that he attempted to retire that night, uh, to resign. But the rest of the politicians decided, if you resign, we're probably going to have to resign. And for political reasons, he was retained. I would like to um, give a little bit of background to Abraham, if I can. He was one of the heads of the Shin Bet, certainly. But by the reputation he had from the other former heads of the Shin Bet, uh, he was cruel. He was ruthless. He was 
absolutely shockingly ruthless and was even a bully. I mean, he would get his way no matter what. And at a certain point, out of... There are many styles of leadership and forcing people into things and ruling with an iron fist is the worst form of leadership. But it can get things done. And he did have a relatively rough, uh, relatively rough thing to deal with. Unfortunately, none of that really matters. What matters is that this man, this, this rough, ruthless man, finally said, all right, that's it. Uh, our politicians, we don't trust them. And eventually, he became more of a proponent for a softer way, a compromise. And we'll see a little bit more of that later. Of course, the sort of situations that lead to uh, murders and hijackings don't simply disappear into the night. And in 1987, there was a spontaneous uh, attempt at a rebellion, revolution, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, uh, on the part of the Arab members of the region. And it was exactly what you'd expect. I saw some videos of it doing the research for this, and things tend to go back to Euromaidan for me, but it's all exactly the same sort of things. People smashing bricks to throw at people. Uh, fire, rocks, tear gas. It, it was what you expect to see out of really any uh, massive public uprising. And, of course, as we can see today, it, it was put down. And I really can't, uh, really can't speak to the situations that occurred during this conflict. That would be for much wiser heads than mine. But it's enough to say that this was... Not the first conflict, but a major uprising, and certainly not the last. Now, in 1991, uh, this was still, it was still running. Uh, the PLO convinces Saddam Hussein to fire scuds into Israel. Which, you know, anyone who lived through the era remembers scuds and Patriot missile launchers. And that is generally... Well, what happened? Uh, he was using military rockets and firing them internationally uh, to attack the people of Israel. And it was only through the uh, UN and US intervention, uh, the Coalition of Nations basically as it were, that Israel was not involved militarily. They Basically, the United Nations said, okay, Israel, we got this, we got this, please just stay out of this. And they did. And the, I don't want to get into Desert Storm, but the forces pushed Iraq back to their borders. And that was basically the end of the conflict, barring political sanctions. That's as far as I'm taking it in this podcast. Uh, in 1992, the Oslo Accords were started. Uh, this saw... The PLO uh, surrender its uh, use of terror as a tool of politics 
and admitted that Israel has the rights to freely and securely exist. This was in exchange for Israel pulling troops out of the West Bank and allowing, I believe it's the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, to have home rule. They would be able to set up their own local governments and actually become close to becoming their own state, which is ostensibly what they want and what the people say that they want. When I say ostensibly, I don't think the people actually doing the shooting want that, but I think the people on the ground want that. Now, the PLO, again, uh, stepped away from terror. They were the number one terrorist organization in Israel until Yasser Arafat pulled them out for the Oslo Accords. The second they were gone, Hamas and the Islamic Jihad uh, moved into the power vacuum and stepped up their uh, stepped up their terrorist attacks. Uh, Nineteen ninety four itself saw a number of uh, suicide bombings, bus bombings, and just general terror attacks. Uh, outside of that, there were also a tremendous amount of huge protest against the Oslo Accords. Uh, there. Were this is about the time when Shin Bet decides that a major threat to Israeli security are the radical rabbis, as much as anyone. Uh, they have no desire to change, they have no reason to change, they think, and they are constantly pushing for uh, solutions that only appeal to them. Now, this is exactly the same as you see with radical imams, but it's interesting to see that Israel is taking a notice of the problems within their own camp, so to speak. So that this isn't purely an us-versus-them religious issue. Israel as a state is attempting to survive by noting that there are two sides, neither of which are them, that are attempting to harm each other however possible, and it is the citizens in the middle who are taking the, taking the brunt of the damage. As they say, when the elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. And it's in this situation that, um, again, can't pronounce these things, uh, Yatsak Rabin uh, declared that due to the difficulties of working with all of this, the peace process would continue as if there was no terrorism, and their counterterrorism would continue as if there was no peace process. This didn't necessarily work out for him. In 1995, one of the surest signs of something really terrible coming uh, occurred. There was a mock funeral for Yitzhak Rabin uh, where they paraded a coffin through the streets. And that cannot end well. The then head of the Shin Bet tried to convince him, because Rabin was a very security-minded man, tried to convince him, you know, wear a bulletproof vest, have protections, have increased security. And he refused. He said, I'm a soldier first, and something, something. And in 1995, 
after giving a speech where he decried violence and congratulated the people who were seeking peace, he was shot and killed. Uh, Shin Bet takes this very, very personally. Um, not only did they lose a man who was seeking peace, but they lost you know, the head of state. They lost someone they knew personally, and they failed professionally. At that point, they decide they are doing things wrong. They are using force. They are using strength as opposed to using their smarts. At that point, they end up converting from a more uh, traditional, uh, traditional is the wrong word, they moved from the sort of uh, tactical, tactics without strategy, they said, a tactical type of counterterrorism to the modern uh, intelligence agency model of counterterrorism, where they would collect information, they would, they would get human intelligence from people, not necessarily from interrogation, which they interrogated over the course of Shin Bet's career between tens and hundreds of thousands of people, both through traditional and enhanced means. And I, okay, enhanced interrogation, very briefly. Enhanced interrogation is not torture. People are always going to debate that. It's not torture the way people see torture. Enhanced interrogation is a very fine, very controlled uh, set of circumstances which are all used in U.S. SEER training. We wouldn't use them on our own people if it wasn't safe. That being said, uh, some of these techniques, like shaking people, do have weird things like putting a towel behind their head to prevent whiplash because the Israelis did manage to kill someone by shaking him. Shaking baby syndrome, but with a grown man. So, that, I'm just going to table that with advanced interrogation. That is something they did, and they might have done more. And we've already discussed that they, uh, some time ago, beat prisoners to death. And we have to accept that that is what happened, and hopefully things have changed from there. It was about this time that uh, some more wise decisions uh, became made. Shalom noted that none of the prime ministers, none of them, no matter how much they claimed they supported the Arab state, ever actually contacted the Arab leaders. Uh, they didn't believe in the peace process enough. And unfortunately, outside of Rabin, no one did. Uh, when he died, so did the peace process. However, uh, Ami... Ayalan, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. I actually do respect you, and I'm sad that I can't get your name right. Uh, he noted that <clears throat> he went to monthly meetings with various uh, heads of Palestinian territories, and he asked them their security concerns. He asked them to pass along any information, and they made it absolutely clear. They had no love for Israel. They were not doing this for Israel or Shin Bet, but the people that they represented, their constituents, wanted a, uh, a Palestinian state. 
And the second they no longer thought that that was the end game, that was it. The Palestinians would pull up stakes and stop working with Shin Bet. And this is definitely a step forward. Uh, many of the people, including Shalom, think that there is the possibility to have the trust required to have a long-lasting peace. Uh, that talking with anyone, absolutely anyone, uh, dissidents, terrorists, anyone, is required for peace. If for no other reason, you learn how similar people are. Uh, one side isn't a monster, the other side certainly isn't. Both might see the other as monsters, but one thing that I've learned talking to people who spend a good amount of time outside of outside of their cultural comfort zones, is that the one thing that everybody can always get together about is food. I mean, if you ever have any questions about what to say to a foreign national that you have a, a some common language with, uh, but you don't know how to break the ice, or even just somebody from the other side of the country you don't have anything, the other side of a political argument, sit down and talk about food. You'll learn we're all pretty much the same. I mean, it's those minor details, and some of those minor details are very important. But it's just minor details that differ, and otherwise we're all very, very similar. And there's very little reason to have all of this hatred. Once again, zooming back out, unfortunately, around 2000, the number of illegal settlements... Uh, had nearly doubled since the beginning of the Oslo Accords. And generally speaking, as I mentioned before, without Rabin, the peace process was 100% dead. Uh, there was no partner on either side to do any work. There was no good faith from the Israelis, there was no good faith from Arafat, no good faith from Palestinians. No one actually believed in the process anymore. And give or take around the year 2002, Ami was discussing Palestinian affairs with a number of Palestinians, and one of them said, you know, we finally beat you. And he said, I, I don't understand. I mean, terrorism is down. Uh, we're trying to get peace together, but all that's really happening is, you know, people are dying. How is that winning? And the gentleman said to him, victory is seeing you suffer. That is, that was the mindset of this one gentleman. He does not speak for everybody. But this is a well-educated, well-spoken gentleman who decided that victory was Israel's suffering. So when they would blow up a bus, Israel would counter, which would make more people angry, and they'd blow up another bus or burn down or whatever. And they didn't care about their own losses. They found a parity of force in Israel using all these technological means, all these intelligence means, airstrikes, drones, the whole nine, and they would use suicide bombers because it hurt them equally. And that... I've made my case. Uh, that is problematic on a very practical standpoint. If violence begets violence, then all you're doing is perpetuating uh, both the enemy's destruction and yours. So... Israel pulled out of Gaza. Uh, 
it is it is to my uh, my error that I don't have the date in front of me. But once they did, it became a major staging point for a major staging point for terrorist attacks coming from Gaza to sort of I don't want to say mainland Israel, but I believe that gets my point across. And to the point of between 2001 and 2014, there were over 12,000 rocket attacks from the Gaza Strip into Israel. Now, the number of people killed was only in the low 30s, I believe, hundreds injured, but four, I'm sorry, 12,000 rocket attacks. In 2007, the records indicate that roughly 34% was Islamic Jihad, 22% was Hamas, 8% was the PLO. PLO is back in the terrorist business, uh, 6% popular resistance, and roughly 30% just uh, unknown actors. And that's that's concerning, not so much the... Uh, the fact that terrorism is still continuing, it's sad that that has become the status quo. But rather that a lot of these rockets are homemade, and they're not very complicated, uh, but some of them do come from uh, Iranian sources, uh, the Codes Force, again, I don't speak Arabic, I'm sorry, uh, translates out the Jerusalem Force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, is very heavily... Uh, in bed with Hezbollah and Hamas. Many of their explosive reform penetrators showed up in Iraq. Many of the rockets show up in Israel. And in fact, the when they stopped being majorly involved in 2008 is when the uh, when our casualties started increasing dramatically in Iraq due to the equipment that they had brought in and the training they provided which generally just puts together that this is actually an international threat. This is a proxy war. Uh, there's no choice about it. This is a proxy war between uh, the Arabs and the Jews. And I wish I could say something different. There are valid concerns on either side. The Palestinians should not have to deal with illegal settlements that are overlooked. They should have... Uh, home rule and a you know representative government. If they're not being represented, then that goes against everything that we consider as Americans. And that's the only framework that I have. I'm trying to see every point of this, but I can only really put my money where my mouth is, as I am. I don't think there is a way to be truly objectively neutral in this situation. I can see both sides have done questionable to horrible things. Now, both sides have done uh, sort of banal things that have caused uh, violence and destruction. And really, what I'd like to see is that everyone, everyone who's actually discussing, the Shin Bet people, uh, a lot of people just in general, with the exception of the extremists out there, they want to get together. They want to find a peaceful solution. It's problematic because uh, groups like the PLO, again, uh, they hide behind the civilian population. 
they claim ownership of a group that they might not even be uh, might not even be supported by. Now, of course, there are probably a number of Palestinians who do, who one way or the other, appreciate what's going on in their name through Hamas, uh, similar groups. But by and large, we have to consider that these people performing violence are actually the outliers and that their first victim of terrorism are the people around them who are told either you will support us or we will kill you and your families. And once we address that and consider that we are able to work together, we are able to have these discussions. We've done it before. We've never reached the end. But we can't have minor problems I kill a greater good. Uh, there, there's no simple solution. There is no simple solution. But when Rabin was killed and the peace process ended, that was a tragedy and a failure. But the death of one man should not have caused this sort of issue. I didn't want to put my opinion in any of this, but I just did. And it's just a situation of it's an unstable, very unstable situation. It's been going on for quite some time. I hope that I have provided a little bit of a background for everybody. But ultimately, there is no simple solution but sitting down, putting together the hard work, and to follow Prime Minister Rabin's example, pursue peace as if there was no terror. I'm Michael Farragher from Between the Borders. I'd like to thank you for not only joining us, but sticking with us. We do have now the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. We also have a mobile-optimized uh, service now on Stitcher. We have a Facebook and Patreon account, either of which is accessible through our website at betweentheborders.com. If you like what you're doing, if we... If we're doing good for you with the shorter episodes, please let us know. If you like the longer episodes, please let us know. Uh, we are very happy to be so well accepted so far, and we really, truly want to bring you the best product that we can. Uh, certainly, if we begin doing half-hour and one-hour broadcasts, I won't be able to do so uh, five days a week. However, I want to produce what you want and what would be best for you as opposed to what I want and would be best for me. Frankly, I don't know which would be best for me anyway. Uh, once again, thank you very much for joining us. I hope